0: You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program.
1: The first question that was most asked of church planners going into these unreached areas was, how much money do you
0: get? Have you ever considered whether the ways we send in funded missionaries or even plant churches could actually stunt the growth of the church? Well, we're going to talk about that this week. This is The Engaging Missions Show, Episode 227, with Gene Johnson. Welcome to The Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing
1: missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger.
0: Thanks for stopping by and welcome to the show. We believe that every missionary and church planter deserves to be heard and loved, and every believer deserves to participate in what God is doing. This show is made possible in part from generous support from people like you. Visit engagingmissions.com patron to learn more about how you can be involved. This week, we're going to be talking about how practice at home might not translate to better performance on location. We'll also talk about how we can unknowingly walk in arrogance and how that can actually make problems that we don't see necessarily, but then how God can take those and redeem them and transform us and make us useful. I'm going to have for you a podcast recommendation, but I also have for you a word of encouragement. I'd encourage you to stick around to the end because it's something that I really feel God would have me share, and I think it's going to be valuable to you. I'd like to welcome Clay, Roger, Austin, Patty, Laura, and Jonathan, who all recently liked the Engaging Missions Facebook page. So welcome. It's great to have you, and I really hope that you enjoy this week's episode with Gene Johnson. Well, today we have with us Jean Johnson. She's a missionary and a coach with over 30 years of experience, ranging from refugee ministry and church planting in the U.S. to over a decade of ministry in Cambodia. She's now the executive director of Five Stones Global and the author of We Are Not the Hero. So Jean, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me into this conversation.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's it's absolutely my pleasure and I I think that I had actually connected with you on Twitter once and kind of saw some of what you were sharing and then I think Gina Thomas suggested that we connect as well. So that was that was a pretty strong recommendation from her. So I'm glad that we're able to do this. As as we get into this today, I think we're probably going to end up getting into some pretty deep stuff because your book gets into some pretty deep stuff and I'm just wondering a lot of times it seems like we, the, the, I see things about what's happening when we get things wrong. And, and it's okay to talk about those things, but I'm also wondering, as we're getting started, can you share a little bit about how you've seen things go right and how that's worked powerfully in the lives of people you've ministered to?
1: Absolutely. So when things go right, now, just for the audience, I'm talking cross-cultural mission work. So that's fair. So we're working cross-culturally. And whether that be making disciples or gathering people in the faith communities, training leaders. I think when things go right, what happens is that people, the cultural insiders themselves, whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or whatever they are, but as they come to know Jesus as their Lord and savior, at the end of the day, they become God's best version of themselves. Mm. So that is the fruit and benefit that, that I long for. And I think, Right now, a lot of things that are going right is that the mission community is stepping back and asking good questions, starting to dialogue and say, yes, we can point back into history at colonialism, but what are our mistakes and what are our challenges now and what might look like kind of a modern neo-colonialism? And that conversation is happening. And even that in and of itself is positive because I believe that for every problem you talk about, there's a solution embedded and hidden in the problem. So whenever you talk about weaknesses or mistakes, inside there is the solution. Mm. And so a lot of people are, are trying things differently. You have the disciple making movements that is growing, the orality movement that is growing, all of these are efforts that are, what would I say, more primary and lots going on. And that's because people have tried to get away from some of the paternalistic, kind of neo colonialistic, hero like paradigms. Wow.
0: So. Oh, keep, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I have seen a lot of fresh things going on, and I would call those the things that are along the line of disciple-making movements, house church movements, the orality movements, and 70% of the world are not book people, are not going to take in and pass on information in highly Western literate ways.
0: Wow, that, that's really good. I, I really appreciate your perspective that so often the answers found actually in the problem. That's, I don't think that's something that I'd heard before. I don't know if it was in your book or I missed and I missed it, but that's, that's incredibly powerful and I, I appreciate that. Is that a perspective that you've always held?
1: I think I've been growing in it because one of my roles today is to help people evaluate and look at what's working and what's not working. And just to preface that, when I'm working or not working... I'm talking about what's working or not working for those people who live in those places who have inhaled the dust for hundreds of years and will continue to inhale that dust. So whenever I look at cross-cultural ministry, the question isn't so much what is successful, what is fruitful for Gene Johnson, the cross-cultural worker, but what works for the local insiders. But having said that, as of late, my role is a little bit more of shining the light on paradigms so that people can step back and say what is truly effective for the cultural insiders, for them and their ability to sustain and multiply. So the more I do that, the more problems come up, you know, solution, I mean, problems and mistakes come up.
0: Hmm.
1: That's why over time I've, I could probably take any any particular problem and look at it and say, well, the solution's. Hidden in there, and so once you realize that mistakes and problems aren't so threatening, they're yeah. a filter or a funnel or a microscope to, to find better answers. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, yeah, I think so. Now, as I was thinking about your life, I I appreciate in your book, you were really pretty transparent and pretty open about your background and some of the failings and some of the things that you got right. And I was reading that, I I was thinking, if I remember right, you grew up in Minnesota and it seems like your heart for missions was planted pretty early. Do you trace that back to anything in particular?
1: I do. It really started when I was in high school. And Mm -hmm. at that time, I myself was just coming to know Jesus in a way beyond I'm going to church every Sunday in a sort of traditional setting because mom and dad say I have to go to church and we get to buy donuts on the way home. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was kind of the gist of my you know, relationship with God. But in high school, my family, my parents, my siblings begin to get a hold of God in a much more personal, vital, daily relationship manner. And that was Why I was coming to know God in that way, that is when there was a lot of issues in Southeast Asia. So you had the Vietnam War, you had the Cambodian genocide, you had the Hmong people group within Laos that was being persecuted based on helping America in the Vietnam War. So all of those people groups fled those tragedies, made their way to refugee camps, and eventually made their way to different countries. So when I was in high school and just getting to know the Lord, at that very time, those three people groups, Cambodian, Hmong, and Vietnamese, entered my hallways. Unexpectedly, the refugee movement or refugee refugees coming our way wasn't as prominent as it is today. So all of it was like a shock. It was new for a sort mm. of middle class, mostly Anglo Anglo-Saxon high school. But those people groups came into our space into our comfort zone and where most of my classmates made fun of them due to oddities you know they would have flip flops on in the winter or because they just weren't used to cross cultural engagement ignored them but oddly enough i just felt the opposite i felt a pull i ate lunch with these refugee students i went to their homes i asked them their story tell me your story what's What's up with you? What's happened to you? And I started a little English class during my study time. Mm-hmm. So that was the genesis of me, Gene Johnson, who was getting to know God, but at the same time getting to know people groups and their stories and backgrounds and beginning to connect my relationship with God with people groups who don't know Jesus.
0: Wow. Wow. And so you you spent some time in high school. You be, began building those relationships. You felt like God was calling you toward that direction. I believe you went to North Central Bible University, if I remember right, at the time. And then after that, you spent some time with refugees, beginning to, I guess, kind of hone those skills and to minister to them. Then you went to Cambodia. When, when you were boots on the ground, when you were there, how was that different from your experience among the refugees?
1: Well, it was... I don't know if it was different, but there was okay. definitely a whole gap. I guess I would call it a, a missing information gap, mm. a cross-cultural gap that, that was definitely there. So when I got into Cambodia, I made the assumption that I lived in the heart of a Cambodian nucleus refugee family. Mm. I lived in an apartment building with 30 Cambodian families in Minneapolis, that somehow when I went to Cambodia that I would have the necessary cross-cultural adaptations and knowledge and intelligence and all those things <laughs> that I should get right to work and I didn't have a learning curve but that was not the case. Cambodia, Cambodia and Cambodian refugees yes there was a huge gap and I still had a lot to learn when their boots on the ground so to speak. It, the Cambodian refugees, they were first generation. So I learned ton, tons from them, mm. but how do I explain the difference? It's just that in country, on, on the dirt, in the land of that place, there was so much more, so much more to learn. Mm.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, you know, as a person who's never, I've never been a vocational minister, so, or a vocational missionary. So it's, it's always interesting for me to hear about those transitions because I, I can't begin to get my head around him. And so I, I love getting those kinds of things firsthand from people that have done that. And you, I mean, your your experience from the people I've talked to is a little bit unique in that you were ministering to those people right here, and then you went over there. so i I'm really intrigued by that kind of thing. I, i'm I'm wondering, though, as as you think about that time, you it, it seems like there were a couple of transitions while you were there as well, that you went over there and you began learning the culture. But then God began revealing some things that shifted your ministry. Can you kind of talk about what God began doing while you were there?
1: Yeah. So just kind of making a bridge, going back to what you asked. Yeah. One of the things I write about in my book is that my greatest asset became my greatest stumbling block. Mm. My greatest asset was that I knew quite a bit of the culture and the language. So why would that anybody, any missionary would want that? Why that asset become a stumbling block? And the reason I call it a stumbling block is because I had that knowledge and experience. I also, as I had already mentioned, had a degree of pride and arrogance, thinking I have all that I need to get going. So why it became a stumbling block is if you were to ask me one thing, that I, Jean, that you would do differently, if you could do it all over again, it would be no matter what knowledge I had in the United States with Cambodian refugees, I still would have spent at least two years in Cambodia upon arrival as a learner doing no formal ministry whatsoever. That's so important. So anyway, what my greatest stumble, my asset that became a, a stumbling block is that i got to work right away. You know, you've got to produce. I've been waiting for years to go to Cambodia. We have to save the world. So I started church, planning a church within one month of being in Cambodia. Oh. So I, I went about that work and, and along with other missionaries doing this and doing that and setting up this kind of ministry, that kind of program. And seven years into our missionary work, there was a coup in 1997, and all missionaries, cross-cultural workers, expats were all evacuated within a day or two, so essentially we disappeared. And that was the litmus test, that was a wake-up call for me, which started me on the path of asking the question, if I was not in Cambodia, if I was removed because of an emergency such as a coup what would still sustain? What would last? What would the Cambodians be able to say, we own this. We have vision for this. We're going to run with this. And we're going to carry out making disciples and planting churches and training leaders for the next 20, 30 years. And I realized not only my mission work, but a big percentage of overall mission work was indispensable to our presence to our expertise and to our financial backing and support and so the thing that shifted my ministry was a coup wow and evacuation and so when i went back into cambodia i started to pray god teach me how to do cross-cultural mission work in a way where i build or create a culture of dignity in other words, cultural dignity, sustainability, and multiplication for the cultural insiders—that they can progress and grow and multiply without being dependent on me as a cross-cultural worker.
0: I would imagine that was a fairly significant transition. I remember reading some of that in your book, but I'd like to kind of take just step back for just a second because something you said really perked my ears up. You mentioned that if you had it to do over, you might go back and spend just the first two years as a learner. And as I'm thinking about that, being a North American culturally, I typically have an expectation of results. And I suspect that a lot of times when people partner with a missionary, they're wanting to get some kind of newsletter that says, hey, these are all the things that i am done. How would you, in that situation, or, or would you find yourself in that situation where you had to bridge the gap and say, no, this is really important, even though I speak the language, even though I think I know the culture, this is really important. How would you bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, there's a saying I use, or I probably even read it and converted it, but it goes something like short-term gain, long-term pain. Mm. And a lot of what we do is americans or westerners or cross-cultural communicators that we set up and do based on that drive to produce to meet the demands of our sending churches you know what are you doing what's Mm -hmm. what's effective uh, producing fruit all of those things in the short term you could write newsletters upon newsletters of Oh, this is happening, and that's happening, and we did this, and we did that, and we did this. And it all looks really great in the short term, like short-term gain. And if you come back around and visit all of these testimonies and all of these efforts that we like to describe in our early years of missions work, many of them are not con- are not sustainable. Many of them are not continued. Many of them are not multiplying because of that second part of that idiom, short term gain long term pain yeah because the the unhealthy dependency the learned helplessness the ecclesiastical welfare system that we set up in christianity around the world doesn't really start to show up until the long term and it's kind of funny Brian because if i have all my newsletters that i would save you know 16 years in cambodia yeah and pull them out and read the first four years or so it's like oh i have no i, I had it all sounds great <laughs> <laughs> and people will you know when i was in cambodia if i was there like four years and i came back home to visit supporting churches and friends and they said well gene what are you doing and, and what works i would say well this works and i'm doing this and then if you were to ask me that same question eight eight years later the answer would have changed because what i thought was working in four years which was working for me, was not going to work long-term for the Cambodians. Mm. So so to close that gap, I think as missionaries, we need to educate, inform uh, those who support us and help them understand that learning is ministry. One of the things I did, even language learning, language learning is not an effort to get to a destination, or to get to be able to do ministry. Language learning is ministry. For example, when I was learning the language in St. Paul, Minneapolis, I was also learning the worldview, because they're interrelated. Secondly, I set up 10 families that I would visit on a weekly basis practicing my language. So I saw those same 10 families over and over and over again. Well, that's church planting. Those are ten relationships. Those are persons of peace that I'm I'm meeting. But after I know the language and the worldview, when I begin to share the good news or make disciples, I'm going to speak through their worldview. I'm going to speak toward their worldview. I'm going to help them take the best redeemed part of their worldview to reach the rest of their fellow Buddhists. Mm. So I think... To close that gap, we really need to speak up and be careful that we don't fall into what we you know the word mission drift, where wanting to please our donors, wanting to please our culture, wanting to please our Western values of expediency and and fast success and kind of that mcdonald McDonaldization of things, that we don't drift from our mission of leading people to Christ who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples to the four, fourth generation.
0: Yeah. I I appreciate you sharing that. As you're as you're sharing that, I'm just thinking how susceptible I am to this kind of thing that if I see something that I, I believe God would have me do, I always want to try and do it in my own power. It's so hard sometimes to trust God to do things in his time. And I appreciate that you're able to, to kind of bring that out because I suspect that's common to a lot of people, particularly in our culture where we are typically results-driven. We, we look for that quick win, and I, I do appreciate that. I want to take a little bit of time to dig into your book. It was an incredibly deep book. There, you covered a lot of material in there, and there's no way we're going to be able to touch on all of it, but I have some questions that came up as I was reading your book. Is, that, is it okay if we kind of head toward that?
1: Uh, yes, that would be great.
0: Cool. So as I was thinking about this, I tried to kind of organize my thoughts around three of the themes that you talked about. Now, it's definitely not covering everything. One of the themes was I was thinking about indigenousness, if you will. Another one was talking about helping or giving. And then the last thing I was thinking about knowing what to do. And I guess the first thing I'd like to kind of talk about, just to kind of set the stage, you spent a good bit of time talking about what an indigenous church might look like versus a church that's been imported from the outside. Can you share just a little bit so that we all kind of have the same baseline to start from?
1: Yeah, so Indigenous has a lot of meanings, um, but a couple meanings for me and based on my book. One is that it, you bring the basics of the gospel, whatever you know, the basics of what Jesus called the good news. I mean, if you follow the patterns of even Jesus in the Gospels, he basically came, taught, taught with authority, taught the good news, prayed for the sick, healed the sick, cast out demons, made disciples, and here and there challenged the old old systems and religion traditions. And, of course, we know he went to the cross and, and rose and rose again, but all of those things are what I would call, let's say meeting, worshiping, praying, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. All of those things I would call function. Hmm. And praying, worshiping, loving your neighbor, breaking bread together, meeting, all of those things are universal. It's it's biblical and it's universal. And and everyone who calls themselves a Christ follower should be doing those things those are functions but what happens is we add form to it Mm -hmm. so pray we decide to pray in a building or go to a prayer retreat or we worship we want to worship by having a platform and a professional worship leaders and expensive equipment all of these things are our form when i speak of the indigenous church i'm speaking in in one aspect the the church itself has those functions, those essential, universal biblical functions, but the forms that they express those functions are more true to their culture. And so for Cambodians, it would look more Cambodian-ish. For hmm. <laughs> Indian, maybe in South, you know South, southern India, it would look more. Uh, Indian it would smell and taste and feel more Indian so that's what I mean by indigenous so there's a story in my book that I'd like to tell if you don't mind that oh, would please
0: work. yeah please do
1: so here's here's the function of church or one of the functions worship so in Cambodia I had planted a church and keep in mind again that I when I was planting the church I was also you know right at it. I didn't spend those two years of just learning even more deeply and adding on to what I learned in Minneapolis. So I planted a church in the capital city of Phnom Penh, and I went to visit that church, Cambodian leadership and whatnot. But I just went to visit, and I was worshiping along with the other Cambodians. And I noticed the Cambodian man within the church, is just something different about him, the way he was positioning himself. I just was so curious i kept looking at him and what is he doing why is he so odd why is he acting that way and eventually it dawned on me brian that this cambodian man worshiping was a he was blind Hmm. so he could not physically see how other people in the church were worshiping so all he could do is a cambodian who knew about worship through the bible to worship God in a way that made sense to a Cambodian, that was innate yeah. to him. And in Cambodian culture, a couple of unique things is one, if you really respect somebody, you don't make eye contact, you don't look in their eyes. If you were to meet up with a king or somebody important in Cambodia, you would get lower than them, you would have your shoes off, you would be, you know, bowed down. And this is where this was the positioning and the attributes of his worship. But everybody else in the church was worshiping like an American or a Westerner, based on the missionary influence, primarily my influence. So I had realized that, why did I teach the Cambodians to worship in form, like we worship in the West, when it doesn't carry the deep, respectful meaning that you would use. We were were standing up, we had our arms lifted, our hands were, I mean, our eyes were making contact with God, supposedly, as we like to look up and worship. And so that's one of those aha moments that God was using to teach me to say, I passed on functions, which is universal and biblical, but I wrapped it in Western and American forms. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the church... Although it had Cambodian leadership and they supported their own Cambodian pastor, they behaved much more like Westerners than Cambodians who were redeemed by the good news. So that would be one example. I think the second one is that when I say indigenous, for me, at least now through my processes, is that indigenous means that they're self-determining, they're self-functioning, They're self-giving, they're self-supporting, all of these things that would make up a church.
0: Yeah, I I like that. I'd like to go back for just a second to that story about worship. And I definitely remembered that from the book because it really, it struck me. As as I look at the Psalms and as, as I look at scriptures, I see a lot of different forms of worship, if you will. There's there's bowing and reverence, there's dancing before the Lord. We all we all like to sing about that, or at least we did back in the seventies. And I'm wondering, do you think that as we read the Bible, our understanding of worship and our understanding of all of this stuff ends up being filtered through a cultural lens even though we don't know that we're doing it that way?
1: Oh yes. I think a lot. It doesn't even matter if if I've had thirty years of cross cultural experience and you know studying the Bible with a different lens. I still have to work hard not to interpret the Bible or the stories or the accounts through my own lens or take what's there and then kind of regurgitate it mm. in shaped in my own worldview. There's a, a saying that fish can't describe water. Yeah. It's really difficult for anybody. It doesn't matter if it's Cambodian American Christians to know the difference between what is our culture and what is what is scripture? I mean, just for a simple example, when you hear of uh, Mary and Joseph, you know, going back mm-hmm. to Bethlehem, the consensus, you know, for the consensus or the, yeah, so you always see in whatever paintings or our Christmas stories, there, Mary and Joseph, and all by themselves are headed with one donkey, <laughs> walking away <laughs> back to Bethlehem. Right. That's because we're individualistic. We, we see society as ourselves, or at the most, we're doing something with our family. Mm. But the Bible and those societies are very communal, and chances are it was a convoy of people going back together, traveling together. It doesn't make any sense that they were just going along in, with their individual selves. Um, yeah, so it, it's very interesting, and I think the, the, that's the missionary's work, is to step back and say, kind of divide and conquer and say, this is is gospel and this is culture. And I'm going to pass on as much as possible the gospel without my culture. But that's hard work. It's real hard work. But I think that's why it's called missions. We're we're the ones who are supposed to do the cross-cultural work, (laughs) not make up on the receiving end of missions, keep learning about us, keep becoming more like us. That gets you back to the Council of Jerusalem in, in Acts fifteen, you know, or is it thirteen? Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. So the Council of Jerusalem, just that whole thing of the Jews forcing the Gentiles to become more Jewish, to become more Jesus followers. We do the same thing. We don't have to do the same thing, and it, we don't want to do the same thing. But desire and intention, and desire and hard work, are, are two different things.
0: Oh, that—that's true, and and you keyed in on something. I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about that passage in in Acts and wondering, is there anything that I do where I'm creating an expectation for somebody who's new to the faith to comply with something that's really not part of the deal, right? It's in in that instance, it was, hey, you need to, you know, you need to submit to the moral law and the 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 various celebration laws of the Old Testament talking to these Gentiles. But I'm looking at myself and I'm wondering, do I do that to people as well? I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about resources because you also spent a good bit of time talking about resources and how some of those can create problems. And, it, and if, you're okay, if you're okay, I'd just like to start off with a question that's really burning on my heart. Is that okay? Yes. So I, I read that and I've, I've read when helping hurts. And frankly, sometimes I read that, that kind of stuff and I go, what in the world should I do? And so I'm looking at this and I'm going, I live in the US. I I have material wealth that puts me in the top 1 to 2% globally. It just is what it is just by the nature of where I live. But at the same time I recognize that unqualified or unconsidered giving can create significant problems. But I I don't want to just waste my money on following after less and desires and things like that. How would you suggest that I approach giving in a way that is meaningful and creates growth in the kingdom rather than creating dependency and stunting growth. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it doesn't come down to give or not to give, you know, that's not what it's all about. Okay. Again, going back to what we, we just had a long talk about giving, giving doesn't happen in a vacuum. Giving is not something it's just giving, giving happens in a cultural context, a context where Particular countries you're in have a history of missions. Hmm. They have their own worldview of how they think about giving and taking. So there's a lot of things I think it's not so much about giving or not to give, but what are what conditions are happening around us? What's the context? And again, it's a lot, it goes back to it's a lot of hard work. Giving just handing over something is much easier than sitting back and really contemplating and discerning how your giving will affect anything. But I think the first thing we have to differentiate is that there's giving as an outsider cross-culturally and giving as an insider. Yeah. And those are really two different things. And I think what happens is a lot of the, I don't know if you want to just say, constructive criticism from When Helping Hearts or My Book or Toxic Charity. Yeah especially my book written from a, a long-term missionary, is when outside giving comes to an inside context, when the outside givers do not, aren't there, they're not in community. So I think the problem is that when we give not in geographical proximity, so let's take Ruth and Boaz Ruth and Boaz, they're giving. They're giving her resources. Yeah. Boaz is obviously well off, but they're in the same context. There's built-in natural, organic, organic collability because they're of the same culture. They're used to the same social systems and social pressures. And Boaz is a cultural insider who has some resources that Naomi and Ruth didn't have. And so, you know, that's fantastic. Give, give. And even in that sense, God set up a way to give, even as they're all in community and doing life together. Hmm. Yet there was disparity. Even God set up a way to give so that those who were gleaning the, you know, the seeds that were falling to the ground, there was a way to give still that needed discernment and to give in a way that for dignity and, and a, created a work ethic so that that's a perfect example but let's say an outsider comes in let's say a outsider comes into that context okay we'll just pretend like it's a modern day context sure and a boaz from our our society let's say from america a, an american boaz goes and sees there's this family by the name a widow by the name of naomi and her daughter-in-law ruth and they think to themselves well we got to do something we got to intervene these people are they need food we need to help and we start helping as outsiders what happens to the boaz who's an insider Hmm. he starts to say to himself oh well this is fantastic then i don't have to take up my responsibility i don't have to do this great somebody else is going to do it for me so i can just get on with what i think is important Hmm. and so that's just a small example, but now do it on a massive example. Let's say outsiders from all over the United States, from Singapore, from England, et cetera, from Europe, are going over to the developing world. And they're going to say, well, let me pay for this, or let me take care of that, or let me take care of this. And as we do that in mass, which we do, it's Mm -hmm. not just a little giving here and there. It's a lot of giving. (laughs) Those who are the cultural insiders begin to Step back into a learned helplessness, and they're conditioned into it. They're conditioned into a mindset. Wow, we we could just sit back, or we can use our money for other things rather than helping our own widows. So that's just one example of where giving can be dangerous. So I think it's not so much again about to give or not to give, but marrying wisdom with the giving and so it's hard to like say here abc give to that and Mm dfg don't that i think it's more about building our capacity and our wisdom and our discernment around that giving rather than trying to you know tell people you should give to this or give to that when i give i usually check on four realms Mm -hmm. of how it's going to four realms. I don't know if you have time, if you wanted me to dive into that. or Oh, please
0: do. This is totally unexpected. And I'm really looking forward to
1: this. (laughs) Yeah. So let's say you have, you have the person you're going to give to. So that's the first layer or the first realm. So let's say that's a pastor. Then if you follow down the line, that pastor has a realm of people that he's responsible, responsible to, or has some kind of accountability with so it'd be his realm of responsibility so that's the second Mm. layer so you have the pastor the person you're going to give to the next group uh, that you need to look at is how will my giving to this pastor affect those he has leadership responsibility for Mm. And then you Mm. take the third the third layer and the third one is how does it affect the churches overall in, okay, let's just take Cambodia. How does it affect the churches overall in Cambodia? Because I'm not just giving to him. When I give, the churches in Cambodia are watching this happen. So I'm not just influencing his mindset or how he sees things. I'm influencing his church of responsibility, his members, his congregation, and all of the churches within Cambodia. Then there's a fourth layer, and the fourth one is the non-believing communities looking in when they're watching all this happen what are they thinking what are they interpreting is it moving them closer to jesus or farther away from jesus so that's when when i give i look at all of those realms because i don't want to help one man do something amazing in his church while all the way down the spectrum to the maybe the fourth category cambodians are looking in and saying well it looks like Christianity, it's just about they're, they're hungry for the money and the free English and employment, and, you know, they're not dedicated. And so it's making them move further away from Christ. So, for example, a, a real live example, in Cambodia, there's often church planners, Cambodian local insider church planners. So they would be the first realm. They would be the ones who are receiving So let's say some outsiders which happened in cambodia frequently widely let's pay these church planners with foreign money so that they can go out and share the gospel and so one thing that i did is there were some church planners going out to different villages and they were being paid from the outside and when they came back into the city i took the opportunity to ask them and what i asked them is when you're out sharing the gospel in these villages to Buddhists who don't know Jesus, in the name of Jesus, as a Christian, what is the first question they ask you? Hmm. And I know that their answer would help me discern the context, the conditions etc. And I thought it might be something like, well, Jean, the first question they're asking us is this deeply spiritual question about Buddha. They ask us, you know, if Buddha was born before Jesus, why would Jesus be God? It was nothing like that. The first question that was most asked of church planners going into these unreached areas was, how much money do you get to do what you're doing? Wow. And can wow. you give me a job too? Now, how is that going to help the church planter's credibility to share the good news and make disciples in an unreached community when they're interpreting that their effort is not heartfelt and sincere, but rather they're doing it for economic benefits? And so my giving, let's say my giving of paying that church planter, I'm not discerning and asking questions far enough. I'm just excited because they're excited because they have now uh, $50 or $100 a month that they get to use to live off of or whatever. Mm. And then I'm not, I'm not let's take the, the other level, just churches. What happens to an indigenous church in Cambodia who's doing all that they can do? They really want to stand on their own feet. They really want to be the ones who pray in, late into the night. They're the, really the ones who want to give to take care of a couple orphans and widows around the church. But then we come along with our resources and our finances and that, and we start helping this church and that church and this church and that church. That church starts to look and compare and say, well, why bother? We'll never compete. Our people leave our church to go to the church with a lot of money. We're just not ever going to be able to compete. It would be better just to find sponsors than to do it ourselves. And so this is just an example of how complex it is when you give cross-culturally and when you give as outsiders, where you're not in the community, where, you're not where there's no reciprocity, where they're not giving and taking, and you're giving and taking as part of being a community rather than a sponsor. You know, a patron-client scenario. So there's there's a lot to think about in your my long answer to your short question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to really lay that out. I remember you kind of touching on some of those in the book, but I, I didn't. I don't remember those in that particular framework. So I really appreciate that. I think it's incredibly powerful. As we start to bring this to a close, I want to say first off, just thank you for taking the time to write the book. I, I understand that you also have some resources that are either available now or will be available soon. Can you share a little bit about what those are?
1: Yeah, the book We Are Not the Hero has been out for a while. It's available on Amazon. But the readership of We Are Not the Hero have been asking me in different formats, mediums, of, or I mean venues, mm. we or I could create participants guide to go with we are not the hero so five stones global myself and another author daryl meekins we have created a we are not the hero participants guide ah. to go with the book we are not the hero and videos that will be available sometime in the next couple weeks so mid to late january okay it's Fun tools. the The guide itself is colorful. It's adventurous. It's intriguing, and then the videos themselves are two to three minutes per lesson. Yeah. So I think it, there's a lot of application, and and you know, you said it was a deep book, yeah. And it's even a bit long. So the guide will help people to even chew on it and process it. it can be done as individuals, teams, or small groups. So I, I'm excited about it. And so if anybody interested, check the website, fivestonesglobal.org in about two weeks from now and it should be available.
0: Excellent. And we'll make sure to have that linked up in the show notes for people as well, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash gene Johnson. Now, Gene, before we hop off, I just want to ask one last question and that is this. How can we best pray for you?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned that I've been in this cross-cultural work for about 30 years. So I'm on the tail end of my work rather than the beginning end. And one of the things that God is, I believe, has required of me or asked of me is to pass on my learning curve. Mm. You know, I hear it over and over again, Brian, people say about my book and when they read it, if I only know in this, if i am only knowing knowing this in the beginning. So that's that's what I do now. I try to make myself, my experiences, the gifts that God has given me to pass it on to those who are out there, the next generation, so that they can learn from my learning curve and avoid those foundational beginning mistakes that that could be avoided if with the right books and the right resources. I have a saying in my book that says day one affects day one yeah. hundred. And I really believe in with my whole heart, whether it's short term missions, long term missions, the emerging church, unreached people groups, That what we as cross-culture workers do on day one will affect day 100. What we do in the short term will affect the long term. What we do on day one will either inhibit or accelerate or enhance local insiders from being the ones to sustain and multiply the essential ministries and biblical ministries that are necessary to make disciples and to gather believers in faith communities. So, based on that, the problem is that most of us don't know that what we're doing on day one is going to inhibit. We think it's going to enhance. But then when you get there six years later, you're like, oh, this isn't enhancing, it's inhibiting. I never would have guessed. Mm. So, I would like prayer for just that God would give me divine appointments and what is it? Kind of divine moments. Mm of just being able to fulfill what he has given me to do, that I would do it well, that he would arrange the right people and the right audiences that he sees fit for what I have to offer. Yeah, I just really want to serve him in the next, I don't know, I'm not going to reveal my age. (laughs) (laughs) Next 15 years, I'd love to just pass on everything. I tease here and there, you know, it's like, especially those, the younger generation who's Who's going after me don't don't make our mistakes, you know, learn from our mistakes, don't make our mistakes, and if you're going to make mistakes, make new ones rather than the same old, the same old so yeah, I would just love prayer to to do a good job and not a good job trying in the way we talk but be successful. <laughs> just a good job in the sense that God says, this is important for me and my kingdom, it doesn't matter about. You know, the driven American culture, what's what's status quo or what's popular. I just really want to operate in the wisdom and under the direction of the Holy Spirit as God sees fit. Easier said than done because we're so full of ourselves at times, (laughs) but I would just love that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, for those of you listening, I would like to encourage you to take a minute, go ahead and stop this right now and just take a minute to pray for Jean that God would do exactly this and that she would be able to walk with extreme faithfulness to whatever he's calling her to do and finding the right people, having the right doors open up and then being able to walk through them effectively. Take a minute to check out her website, check out her book. It's a really, really deep read. I think it's going to be really valuable. Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Brian, and thank you for all that you do to bring these kind of podcasts and interviews to each other around the world so that we can learn from one another. So I appreciate what you do and may God strengthen and bless uh, what you're doing through Engaging Mission.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. I did mention to you that I'm going to have for you a word of encouragement. But before I get to that, I have a podcast recommendation. You can find this at missionalaudio.com. This week's recommendation is the Dylan Dodson Faith and Life Podcast. I was actually a guest on this show some time ago. Dylan's been a guest on this show as well. The Dylan Dodson Faith and Life Podcast is all about helping you connect your faith to everyday life. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. He has new episodes released every Wednesday. And I'd like to just mention that this is one of the podcasts that's on my playlist, and I listen to it regularly and I enjoy it. So about that word of encouragement, I'd like to just take a minute to encourage you. See, when I see us, when I think of us, what I see is a perhaps small, but a mighty band of warriors, not mighty because of who we are or because we're so incredibly disciplined or powerful, but I see people called by God with soft hearts and I see compassion and growth. And I'd like to speak a little bit of encouragement to you because I know that sometimes it can be lonely, especially those of you who are away from your home country or perhaps you're preparing and feeling like you're not quite there yet. Sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes it's hard work for all of us. And if you're out there and you're feeling like nobody's got your back, like everybody's forgotten you, or maybe that there's nothing more for you, God hasn't forgotten you. We serve a God who cares, a God who remembers, and who has all of the resources of his kingdom available to deploy. If people have forgotten to pray, we have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's always interceding for us if you're a sender, if you started to feel like what you do doesn't matter, if you started to feel disconnected from what God's doing, remember that those who stay behind share in the victories of those who are sent and that our service is to God and not to men. He sees the struggles. He sees the sacrifices. He sees the passion. He sees the discipline. For for all of us, be encouraged. When you're weak, He's strong. When you forget, He remembers. When you fail, He succeeds. When you're poor, He's rich. We're blessed when we're cursed and reviled. And while those words maybe mean different things to each of us, they mean something. And wherever you are, Wherever you are, God is with you. Whatever you're going through, God is there with you and God cares. This is what I'd ask us to remember, what I'd ask you to remember, to remind ourselves of, to remind me of, to remind each other of. God is there. Let's take this. Let's carry it forward. Remember that God is there with you. God is empowering you as you go. He goes with you. God is doing something powerful in our lives, not because of me not because of us, but because of him, because he's a good God and he loves us and he loves the world and he's sending us as ambassadors to his, for his kingdom into the world to send his love into the world. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. I love that you're here with us. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Gene just for taking the time to be with us. Today's show notes are available at Engaging Missions. slash Jean Johnson. That's where you're going to find ways to connect with her as well as all of the other things that are there. Make sure that you come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be hearing from a missionary who spent some time working in Honduras, who feels called to Asia, and who's been walking out a really interesting season of having worked full-time and being involved in missions, now transitioning to preparation to be able to go into full-time missions. Make sure that you don't miss that by subscribing to the show at engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And please help me understand how I can serve you better. If you have any feedback about the show or anything like that, send that to feedback at engagingmissions.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. See you in a couple of weeks.